I'm in Cape Town. It's cold as all hell. Uh, there's no mountain out the window. It's just clouds. I've got this little space heater in this apartment uh, that's trying its utmost best, but I've got a giant window over there. And the thing is it about a, it is, a, is it a space heater or a space heater? It's a it's a space heater. Does it heat the space, or is it just one of these heaters that, that are like look like they're from space? It. I wish it was the latter. It is unfortunately <laughs> the former. Um, <laughs> so it's just a heater. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just a heater, and it's teensy, uh, and it's nice when it's on. But then it the temperature immediately drops as soon as I turn it off, just because. Yeah. As you know, South Africans don't believe in winter, and so none, nothing is insulated over here. And it's probably about 13 degrees inside. That's why I'm all jacketed and beanied and scarfed up at the moment. I mean, I've got exactly the opposite problem. So when I when I go outside my door, first of all, my room is quite stuffy, uh, despite being uh, below ground level, which is quite good because it does keep a little bit of the heat away. But as soon as you go out the front door, you're just uh, bombarded with this like really dry heat. And uh, the thing is, there's no escape from it. And there's also no escape from uh, British people uh, in their orange selves lying on the on the parks, like mm -hmm. with just their sort of undies on while they're catching like a tan. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure that there's a lot of very pink Brits wandering about right now yeah th there's quite a few of them and the thing is it's just it's just very hard to escape it uh there's no there's no way to like find uh like a, a park or i mean like in cape town you could just always go down to the beach at least if there's if it's like a hot day but uh there's just no escape and even even the water in the taps um it's not cold uh, because I, I don't think they've ever considered the fact that there could be hot days. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really interesting is, yeah, in, in Cape Town, we don't insulate because it's only, you know, cold for one or two months out of the year. And over there, they don't, you probably don't have air conditioners. No. So a lot of people kind of do a trade-off, right? They, they during during the uh, the summer months, they, they think about, they're like, oh, we should get a heater. Uh, but then they decide hmm, it's only going to be like a couple of days and it'll be like rainy and cold again. So why, why put in the investment? And now with uh, climate change is happening more and more often. So I think there's going to be a, a ramp up in the number of heaters. So if you own a, I, I mean, a, a air conditioners, I mean, if you own an air conditioning business in the UK, you're probably going to do quite well in the next couple of years. I think we'll have to do a, a full podcast episode about this, but I'm sure you've heard of heat exchangers uh so it's... so we just need a huge heat ex exchanger from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere <laughs> no, like a, <laughs> it essentially just exchanges heat with the with the outside um and it works kind of like a refrigerator and then when you need to heat up the inside of your house you just run it in reverse right yeah and so you, you have a compression cycle if you want it to heat up and you have a decompression cycle if you want it to cool down. Uh, and I think that's a that's a good mixture of both worlds. And I think in, in the EU, there's a lot of, uh, I think all modern buildings have to use heat exchanges and you're not allowed to use like boilers and stuff anymore. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, so if you take, a, if you take an air conditioner, right? Uh, it blows like hot air out the back and cool air inside. So... Could you just like swap that swap you that just, round? You just have it on like a Scooby Doo wall, 
right yeah you so just, you like, just push like, the wall like, around yeah exactly and, 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 and you suddenly got a heater yeah perfect uh, i think perfect. we're on to we're onto something except right. for like it's going to be very hard to sort of pad the the doors so if it's like a i would imagine it's like a square or circular sort of swing board yeah so it has yeah. to have like a very flush but if it had like a quite a, a satisfying click you know like people are into magnets these days so like they have like a magnetic click so if it like clicks very like nicely <laughs> i think we'd have a great product well, so I think that the problem with a product like this is that it might not have a lot of longevity just because of all the moving parts and the silliness of the design, which brings us to the topic of this episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Herman and Jason Spin the Yarn. And today we are talking about longevity, uh, both longevity of pro products, but we may also uh, dive into longevity of other things. So such as uh, biological longevity and potentially human longevity. Uh, so where are we going to start us off? Where are you going to start us, Home? Well, I think that uh, the, main, the main product that I want to talk about, because this is a growing concern in the world right now, is, is my, my smartphone, right? <clears throat> is... We had, especially in the early 2000s, gotten into the habit of tossing out a phone every one or two years uh, because, you know, technology was advancing rapidly. And also with phones which had moving parts like joysticks and stuff, those would give out. And so after one or two years, your phone would be completely dead um, and you would be needing a new phone. Whereas I've been happily using my iPhone 8 since 2017. Uh, and bar being held up at gunpoint and having it stolen from me once I went and bought another iPhone 8 and it's happily serving me in 2022 and I reckon I could carry on using it if uh, and I probably will carry on using it for the next couple of years um, the one thing that I would have to do is just replace the battery which is currently at 82 percent capacity but it's very easy and very cheap to replace the battery and this is such a well-built device that I have absolutely no reason to upgrade it bar Apple introducing an update that uh, slows it down, which hopefully they don't do after the class action lawsuit. So I had a similar challenge. Uh, so my, uh, my phone actually was quite bashed up. So I've got uh, an S10 and it's like one of the, it's one of the last Samsung phones to have a audio jack. So I really enjoy this phone and it's, it was even before that I had like a really janky also S uh, phone and I, I really enjoyed it. I had that for like many, many years. So I think it was like four or five years. So this was like a great upgrade. Uh, and it was like my first experience of like a proper sort of full tablet smartphone, I guess. Um, and I enjoyed it so much that uh, when I went to go and buy a new one, I, I went to Samsung. I was like, yeah, I just want a, uh, the same as this, please. And they said, sorry, we don't uh, stock the S10s anymore. Uh, and even the guy behind the desk, he was like, yeah, man, that is a really good phone. Um, so I was a little bit dis disappointed. I looked at some of the new phones and they were a bit too flashy for me. So then I went uh, I went away and I, I went online and there was a uh, secondhand phone uh, marketplace. And I just got the exact same s S10 and uh, I uh, just 
it got so this marketplace you could actually choose the quality level and what they do is they refurbish phones and then resell them and i just got the same phone it looks pretty much brand new just slapped the cover on it and uh nice so i've got my my same phone again i think and, overall this is like a, a philosophical um understanding of the world is when we take a look at a product we depending on who you are would like it to solve our problems but also to do so uh robustly for a for a long period of time and when where this first crossed my mind is uh when i was thinking about frying pans right and so this applies to phones it applies to clothes definitely because clothes are almost a disposable item for people nowadays but with frying pans i grew up in a house that had uh cast iron frying pans and the nice thing about cast iron frying pans is that if you treat them right they will last you forever and also if you treat them badly they'll still last forever you'll just have to have to uh season them again but my first boss when i was uh outfitting my apartment and i said oh you know i'm i'm spending a lot of money like getting cutlery and bed sheets and everything like that. And the advice that he gave me was buy one really good piece of crockery per year for the next five years, instead of buying like one of those sets of Teflon coated cheap things from at home. And by the end of that five years, you'll have a, a crockery set that will last you for your life. But not only that is that you will enjoy using it more because a you know non-stick pan that you get from at home will start chipping and scratching in no time at all and then for the next year it's going to be a very very unpleasant experience and just to preface the rest of of this episode there's a there's a uh quote from terry well from one of terry pratchett's books it's called the the samuel vimes uh theory of socio socioeconomic unfairness and this kind of uh, uh, explains it to a certain extent, or although it, it's more of a critique on capitalism, but it is, uh, let me just read it to you. The reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50 but an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two, and then leaked like hull when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kinds of boots Samuel Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankhmore Pork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man could only afford cheap, cheap boots, would have spent hundreds of dollars on boots in the same time, and would still have wet feet. And I think that uh, sort of aligns with my understanding of, of products is like, if you buy cheap phones, you're never going to be happy with your phone and it's also going to give out all the time, whereas spending a little bit more leads to a better outcome in every way. But here's the thing. 
So if you think about it from the perspective of a manufacturer, the time, the value you get back from uh, building a product that is infinite in duration is um, it's harder to sort of quantify in terms of a business outcome, right? If you're going to invest, so let's take the smartphone example. So if you're like Samsung or Apple and you're going to invest time and money into innovation um, to build a product uh, and you build a product and then people buy it once and then they go off and they never buy one again, then your only only sort of uh, growth is going to come from more people buying that one product, right? The other challenge is that it's very hard to get feedback from uh, your market because you've got one product, it goes off. There's no sort of demand for another product, right? So no one's going to be sort of, um, no one's going to have a need for any more features or anything else. So there's never going to be this uh, sort of, this thing that businesses do. So when you start a business, you're trying to find some sort of need that needs to be fulfilled, right? And you do that need by, delivering a product or a service uh, that people need. Um, so there's no gonna, never going to be a gap because you've you've solved that problem. And so it's very hard to get innovation out of that. I think Maybe. that you are right in most circumstances, but there are niche cases where uh, having a, a sort of economy of scale inside of a product actually makes for for a higher quality product so uh, as i i sent you a message yesterday saying hey jason i bought a car and it's a bright orange uh modern suzuki and when you take a look at cars specifically is if you go and you buy yourself a expensive niche car let's say for instance you went and you bought yourself a jaguar a jaguar is a very nice car However, it is significantly less reliable than a Toyota Corolla. And it is less reliable than a Toyota Corolla because Toyota produces so many Toyotas as Toyota Corollas every year. uh, And they get feedback and they improve it and they improve in it. And so in the grander scheme of things, Toyota not only is more reliable, but it is also cheaper to repair because everyone can repair a Toyota Corolla. Uh, because it's so ubiquitous and interestingly enough and i looked this up before the before the call is they actually have the highest resale value of any car uh so they retain about 70 percent of their value after five years of driving it out of the dealership um, followed by honda followed by suzuki so the japanese are really doing something right when it comes to building Mm. uh reliable cars um and so are the germans or uh at least vw is doing a is doing a pretty good job with that outstanding job no it's it's interesting and this is what i kind of get a little bit excited about when it comes to uh product development right so i i've been looking at like you know the the field or or the the art of product development recently it's it's almost like a fact that they've taken they've taken the parts and they've designed them in such a way that they're quite easy to replace so in some senses you're not going to you're not going to state of the art that it makes it really hard to 
to kind of uh, fix. So I know back in the day, uh, you can look at examples like in Cuba, right, where in uh, the 50s, they were very good. They bought a lot of American cars and then there was a whole embargo that happened and they just became really good at fixing things uh, or fixing those cars. So those cars were simple enough that they were able to find other people that were manufacturing the parts and they were quite easy to interchange. So by having something that's like easy to fix uh, and also like super reliable, you're almost distributing that work to uh, other people so that you don't have to do it yourself. So if you look at the example of Tesla, right, you're like um, both creating the cars and then you also have Tesla uh, centers where you have to go get it fixed, right? So there's a benefit in that, that you also get feedback from your own company because when someone goes to fix it, you can take a record and say, oh, what's breaking? So let, we need to focus on that a bit more. But if you send a car out into the world and people are fixing it themselves, and it's a harder problem to track what's going on and how to make your product better. Um, and the other side of it that I've also re realized quite recently is that with cars, um, the value of the car can fluctuate over its lifetime. And the value is determined by what its resale value is. So you could potentially get a certain resale value in a particular market at different times. So, right, you, you might have a, a two-year-old two car, and that might be the optimum time to resell that car to an, another market. Say you want to sell it into the South Africa market. So you buy it in the UK, and then you move that car to, the, to South Africa. And because it's a, you know, they can't afford necessarily the, the same car, you have like the sort of authorized pre-owned. So that time to send it from the first market to the second market could be like two years down the line. But if you owning that car all the way up until like 15 years later, that opportunity to resell is gone. And the lifetime of the car can actually be less in terms of like, I can sell it to this person, I can sell it to that person. Uh, you As a business, you're making the sale, but you're also potentially extending the lifetime of the car a little bit longer. I, I think you're, I think life. that's a really interesting, a uh, really interesting thing. And uh, in you saying that it, it sort of brings up the fact that all these conversations are incredibly, incredibly nuanced is yeah. uh, so I drive now uh, a Suzuki and my brother drives a uh, Mercedes Benz and his Mercedes is nice and, and it's fairly modern. However, now that he's paid off his car, he, him and I were having a conversation of when would be the right time for him to upgrade to, to uh, essentially trade in his car because after a certain period of time, his upkeep of the car as it gets older will become more and more expensive. Whereas with something like a Toyota Corolla, as it gets older, the upkeep doesn't necessarily become that much more expensive, right? And so the nuances is there is that I could realistically buy a Toyota Corolla and drive it until it dies. And that will be a very good investment. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if you buy a Jaguar, it's in your worst interest to drive it until it dies. Instead, you need to drive it until it starts giving you problems and then, or drive it until before it starts giving you problems and then resell yeah. it. Unless it's a classic, like I think classics would also break into that. And also, interestingly, mm -hmm. uh, I, I saw this use case, which is also related to phones, right? So we talked about the cars, but within phones, you have components that are essentially reusable, right? So you've got like 
the 5G chips or the 4G chip or whatever. You've got the accelerometer. You've got these different components that are quite static. And their marginal value can still be quite relevant uh, one or two years later, rather than when you have to throw away the phone later down the line. So if you're like Apple or you're a phone manufacturer and you can almost take in the phone at, at the right time, you can take those components and recycle them into your newer devices. So this is, comes into like the topic of circular economies, right? So uh, it, and, and, and unfortunately, so it takes two parts, right? So you have to have a product that's designed in a way that you can reuse these parts. So you can, you have your first product, it's got components in there that will help you build the second product. And then you have the second part of it, which is the product part of like, oh, trade in your phone. Uh, we'll take the phone and we'll recycle it. Uh, and you'll get a new phone or discount on your new phone. So that recycling process, you're actually taking those components because you've designed it initially. You can reuse those components for a new device. And so you're shortening the circles for recycling rather than it going all the way to like, the end of its life and then hit ending up in a in a landfill uh or you know like with my s10 there's a certain time where they'll say oh no we don't take s10s anymore uh for um uh we don't take it as a as a trade-in mm. and because there's no usable components in that time so it's a it's a very interesting kind of uh story there I, I agree with you. And I think that there's, it also brings up a bit more nuance. And I, and I, this is why I kind of love this conversation is that there's so much nuance to it. There's no di direct, like this is the best or the worst way because uh, Apple is notorious for being difficult to repair. What they'll do is they'll just say, oh, there's some water damage. You need to replace your chipboard and your screen or actually just buy a new phone or a new laptop or whatever. However, Apple argue uh, Apple products arguably last the longest and have the highest resale value. And so these are like counterintuitive things about it. Um, but when it comes to, to cars, or actually let's talk about tractors, because there's a bit of controversy with John Deere at the moment, where John Deere has got like built-in service plans and computerized stuff, which has created a huge spike in the price of old tractors that don't have all this bullshit right because mm. they can be repaired on the farm by the farmer you don't have to call a call center so they can send out a technician or anything like that and so i agree that repairability is important but i think it's also nuanced in its importance as you said with with tesla uh it is good for tesla and for all the cars overall if they handle the repairs because now they know where it's breaking and how to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. But yet at the same time to the end user, they're like, why can't I take it to Joey down the road? Yeah. So, it's, and it's, it's such a, it's such a trade-off, right? Because uh, I've also heard of another example, which is with jet engines, right? So like Rolls-Royce are, they, they, and this plays into circular economies too. It's like what they're doing is like, um, they're, they're basically measuring what is the output of their engines, not in terms of thrust, but what is it that the customer wants? The customer wants uh, a certain mileage and a certain power delivered to the, mm -hmm. to the aircraft, right? So what they do is they're now embedding uh, IoT and these kind of tracking device, not tracking, but like they're taking telemetry from their engines 
they're measuring that telemetry themselves and measuring the lifespan of those engines. And over time, they can start to see when it degrades. And then instead of the um, airline being the one that says, oh, we need to like refurbish these, these engines, uh, Rolls-Royce will send them a message and say, hey, we can see that this engine is um, it's underperforming. We've promised you the performance of this engine. And then we'll we'll come out and we'll we'll repair this this engine at a certain time before it like breaks even more, right? So you you you're able to jump in there, and I think the John Deere example is similar to that, right? They're going to come up with a plan where they say, "Hey, we we can we can see when your your tractor is about to break down." So rather than you wait waiting until it's broken down and then having to replace you know the whole engine, why don't we just catch that earlier? using some of our sort of advanced telemetry uh, and they'll use like AI and ML to, to do that. Like, why can't we catch it earlier? And then we'll just send you an SMS saying, Hey, we noticed that your tractor uh, needs a new disc brake or ne needs a new sort of, uh, you know, whatever component and just send it out to you immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I think you also, you also bring up a, a good point over there is that I, I, in my mind, when I think of the longevity of products, I, I always think about retail products because those are the ones where people tend to get like screwed by manufacturers, mm -hmm. but in, uh, in the industrial sense, because, because industry doesn't necessarily move with fashion is like, if a telephone works, they're not going to get the one which has three cameras because it works. Um, and in the same way, like when a uh, Boeing 747 is built, it is built with the intention for it to be serviceable for the next 20 to 30 to 40 years, mm. right? It's not it's not built until it becomes like cool to upgrade it to the latest model. No, no, no. That thing is yeah. going to run until it falls out of the sky. Well, okay, it's not going to fall out of the sky because it's maintained and stuff, but it also needs to be highly maintainable, right? And this is also one of the, uh, on a bit of a tangent, this is also one of the reasons why the electrification of aircraft isn't going to happen is even if we figure out the energy density problem of electrical, uh, of electrical storage is we're not going to replace the hundreds of thousands of, of aircraft anytime soon. They have uh, serviceable lives for the next however long. And so you know, we could, it would take way too long for us to replace all of them with an electrified yeah. fleet. Um, but yeah, industry does uh, longevity pretty well yeah. because it is baked into their economic interests. Yeah, I think I think th things tend to break down when you have some sort of brand or some sort of identity tied to it. So like, yeah, like fast fashion and all of that comes fashion. into it. I've got, I've got another mm -hmm. sort of story slash... Uh, part and this will potentially lead us into maybe biological longevity or maybe not um so jellyfish the topic of jellyfish uh and the the thought i had was that jellyfish i, I basically did a search i was like what is the world's oldest creatures uh that are still alive right um and there were a couple of them there's you know certain amoebas and certain sort of things and one of them was a jellyfish uh, they came from the Cambrian era and they're the oldest multi-organ animal in the world. And the idea that I came, that I thought about was the reason why it's lasted so long is because it is to a certain degree optimal 
right? So it is optimized to a certain, uh, you know, environment. environment, right? Yeah. So the question then comes is that, is it necessary for something to be optimal that it has to have longevity? So that's, this is a very, very interesting topic. And uh, I, I love jellyfish. I've got one tattooed on my arm. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool animal or plant or multicellular organism. Um, But it has adapted to its environment really well. And it is actually very, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the, the, the book and the term anti-fragile by, you know, Nicholas Nassim Talib, where uh, you have something that's robust, but then you have something that's his, he's termed anti-fragile where it is resilient in a way that it can change to accommodate the times. And interestingly enough, jellyfish are doing incredibly well with climate change because they are optimized for warmer oceans and they don't, you know, get full of microplastics or they don't eat up all the microplastics and, uh, and die of starvation. And when we contrast that to sharks and sharks are also really, really cool things. They, uh, they have been in a similar state for, longer than trees so sharks pretty much became optimal for the oceans uh, a fucking long time ago however they're not doing super well with humans because humans have started killing them off and habitats Mm. have been changing and so sharks are actually pretty much universally heading towards extinction right Mm. and so so i guess you're you're right in that something needs to be optimal to its environment however that environment can change yeah May- and maybe your maybe your frying pan example is something that we can think about because like my idea was that it's like when you when you st- spoke about that is a frying pan is a fairly simple item right it is optimal for what it does which is you know frying and cooking things right so whereas a phone is maybe the you know what it does is not it's not quite optimal because it only it does so many different things, right? And maybe because it's because we've gotten to the point where optimal is, you know, making a phone call, sending a message, then it's like getting to its like final state of development. Yeah, I, I see what you mean over there. And actually I think that you're completely right that the frying pan is is a really good example because it's optimal to its environment. And that included cooking over a campfire, cooking on an electric stove cooking on a gas stove and now we've got this big shift to cooking over induction and it works on induction because it is ferrous right Mm. whereas everyone's like fancy stainless steel pans that they've bought or a lot of non-stick pans that they bought won't work on induction because it doesn't have a ferrous material and so in many ways a cast iron pan is extraordinarily resilient in that it actually deals with a changing environment because the cooking environment has mm. changed a lot over the mm. last 50 to 100 years um so well done to cast iron pans here <laughs> yeah exactly and also like, maybe on the on the animal side of thing i think the thing that's that's uh the thing that's got longevity with nature is that the fact that it does evolve right so uh i went to the natural history museum and you kind of see these huge animals and these huge sort of dinosaurs and then they got they were became extinct through like whatever meteor that hit the mm-hmm. earth and 
there was only sort of mice and mammals that were left. And from mammals all the way up to elephants, you know, nature can show that it it can evolve to be that. The only challenge is that, you know, we can wipe out most species. And if we don't wipe out like mice or rats, there's a chance that they could evolve to be those other things. So the only challenge is that in our in the time span we have as humans, do we get to enjoy that time with those animals and actually experience them? Because my my thought is that, you know, life will go on and eventually maybe evolve into those things again. So once humans, you know, are wiped out for whatever reason, uh, maybe that's too like sort of big, big picture. Maybe as a, as a kind of, if you want to go on on about that, but. Oh, uh, no, I think, I think what happens is when, when our species is wiped out, if it is ever wiped out, then things are just going to evolve into crabs again. Cause it turns out that uh, I think it's called Carso Carso something. It's essentially multiple times throughout the history of our planet have things evolved a crab like structure. Cause it turns out that is the optimal, the optimal pinnacle of evolution. And we're just kind of lucky that we're, that we're mammals and not crabs. I mean that I I don't I don't quite believe that because I think crabs can only move to like they can move, only move sideways which I don't feel is like an optimal maybe that's a good thing unless unless you've got a big claw because I know that some crabs have like a small claw and then a bigger <laughs> claw that they're just like going like like sort of go forward and like sort of snap um, the other the the last one to maybe like bring it up and bring it up a notch as I see we're getting to um, time on our new recording platform. Uh, if you had to store something for a very long time, how would you go about it? Are we talking? Are we talking nuclear waste? And I'm not, I'm not talking, I'm not talking a uh, McDonald's burger, but like something like a sandwich, or mm-hmm. um, but th- this is um. Maybe so just in general. does it have to be? Does it have to be in the same? Is it organic and doesn't have to? Does it have to stay in the same state? Because if the answer is yes and no, what I would do is I would do hydrothermal carbonization, turn it into coal, and then bury it. So you have to store some information in it. Ah, uh, so, so okay. There has to be some sort of information stored. I'd do. I'd. I'd essentially. Because uh, if you think about the oldest records that we have, they're like glazed. They're they're like clay tablets, right? And so yeah. we know that clay tablets last a really long time and so what i would do is i would use modern uh ceramic firing methods to print out that information in a way that is kind of like the rosetta stone where we've got a bunch of different languages that translate the same thing so if any of those languages survive we'll be able to sort of cross-reference it and build Mm -hmm. an understanding of of that language because you can also build an understanding of language by just having the same thing translated into another language that you don't know and you look for similarities between those those two or you look for patterns between those two languages so essentially ceramic glazed multiple languages put it in a desert because things in deserts last a lot longer than things in forests would you yeah uh, I mean, one example is like the like the pyramids, right? So maybe you would make a really large structure because also stack it in find a, this yeah. Rosetta Stone, right? Yeah. So like, where would you put it? 
It's a good point. It's a good point. And uh, well, so the the problem with building pyramids and stuff like that is you can put it in there, but how do you safe keep it from people Robbers. breaking in and, and taking it, which yeah. is a huge problem. So um, I like this idea of the there's the um they call it the ice vault, uh, which is like uh, somewhere in the northern hemisphere. They with all the seeds, huge, yeah, this huge underground seed vault and the idea with this project for those who don't know is they've basically tunneled into the ground and it's it's like a really sort of remote location very very cold somewhere in the arctic circle i I think it's somewhere you know maybe norway one of those scandinavian countries and they're trying to store every sort of type of seed or every sort of uh, seed they can think of in the idea that you know, one day we might wipe out all of nature and then at least some people would be able to go back and find that uh, vault. Although maybe at that time it will, won't will be in snow, it will be just in the ground. Well, so you say wipe out nature, but one of the main reasons for that vault is not necessarily because we wiped out nature, but because we wiped out all of the plants that we have cultivated and we don't want to go back yeah. to eating like wild spinach and tomatoes the size of peas. Yeah, exactly. Um, Actually, but... interesting. On on that, uh, did you know that broccoli and cauliflower are not actual vegetables? No. They're not actually plants. They what? were they were cultivated from a radish. So, so it's over time, so they took radishes and uh, essentially they grew them over many many sort of cycles or whatever they call it in biology, and it's not actually a naturally occurring. Um, vegetable which uh, makes sense because it looks kind of kind of huh. strange that's pretty neat um well to to tie this all up i think a combination of what we said about products that last and a combination of how nature lasts is i believe philosophically that if we build and use products that last a really long time we have a lower environmental impact and so things in nature can thrive a lot better as well when we don't have to kill off all the sharks.